0: My name is Josh, uh, one of the pastors here at Radiant Life, and you get to hang out with me here for a little while as we continue in our series, The Unseen Realm, talking about the flesh, the spirit, and signs and wonders. And we've started this series with, with kind of an exploration of the, the trio of enemies that we face, kind of the, this, this triad of evil within the unseen realm, and, and that's what we're exploring to, to kind of dig in to this series. It's this idea of the devil, the flesh, and the world. Paul outlines this, this trio for us in Ephesians chapter 2. He's writing to the, the Christians in Ephesus, and he's, he's reminding them of some things. And he says this in, in Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 3. He says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you previously walked, there we go, I'm just going all over the place, in which you previously walked according to the ways of what? This world. According to the ruler of the power of the air. That's the devil. He says you used to walk according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived. Again, he's writing to followers of Jesus and he's reminding them. He's like, yeah, hey, you guys, you used to be like this. We used to live among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. And we were by nature, children under wrath as the others were also. So there are these three components in the unseen realm that work against us as we seek to follow Jesus. The devil, the flesh, and the world. Now, last week, Pastor Ryan uh, dug into this idea of the devil. Again, the idea that the devil operates through lies and deceptive ideas. He reminded us of of that, that powerful truth that the W's presented to us back in the late 90s, that when it comes to Satan, it's important to remember that he is the devil and the devil is bad. Zero 90s Scout fans in the house. Is Caleb, are you with me? All right. Whoo. I'm glad, uh, glad this one isn't recorded where every, my failure is now broadcast to the world. He is the devil and the devil is bad. Google it after service. Don't Google it now. Google it after service. You will thank me. Trust me, you will thank me. But we have the devil who works through deceptive ideas and lies that play to the flesh, which are these disordered desires and loves, and those are then normalized in sinful society. Today we're going to camp out in that middle section and we're going to talk about the flesh. Because if you just look at the devil and say, oh, the devil lies, like, oh, man, well, let's just blame the devil for everything. No, I like what comedian Brad Stein says. He says, man, if the devil did anything, he basically just woke you up today Right, and we, and we take it from there. Because the lies of the devil are effective because they align with our existing disordered desires. Does that make sense? He spreads dis, disinformation and we buy into it because it appeals to something within us. So his lies align with our existing disordered desires. Now, if I were to call you for dinner, I invite you over for dinner, right? and I say, all right, hey, it's dinner time, and I I scoop up a nice steaming pile from this and put that on a plate in front of you, how many of you in this room are like, yeah, you know what, I'd actually, I'd be a little bit tempted to, to take a bite. Anybody? No, why not? It's garbage. It's garbage. However, I can invite you over to my house for dinner. And I could put garbage on your plate, and you would eat it if it looks like this. I'm just saying. At the end of the day, you're putting junk in your body, but this one is a whole lot more appealing than the previous picture. Am I right? The lies of the devil appeal to our existing disordered desires. And so we're talking about this idea of the flesh. The Greek word is sarx. Everybody say sarks. Sarks in scripture, right, this references like your actual flesh, like flesh and bone, the meat of humanity, the meat of animals. Flesh can mean that in scripture. But we also see this used to describe this sinful nature some verses say corrupt desire, sinful passions, or evil desire. And it's referring to this, this thing within us that every single human being is born into this world with. right? Contrary to the idea that, that people are basically good, or the theory that, that we are blank slates until outside influences shape us one way or the other, Scripture points to this truth that we are, we are born, we come out of the womb with a bent towards evil. And Pastor Ryan talked about this a couple of weeks ago, right? We do not have to teach our children how to sin. We have to teach them how not to. You don't, you don't go to your children and say, all right, today, I'm, I, I'm, man, you're, just, you're sharing way too much. I need to teach you how to not share so much. No, we have to teach them to share because by nature they want to hang on to those things for themselves. We do not have to teach little Susie to hit little Johnny because little Susie wants to hit little Johnny and she's really good at figuring that out for herself. So we say, no, 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 hey, let's, let's not hit little Johnny. We come into this world with a bent towards evil. Every single one of us. So the question that we want to ask today about that, that flesh, about that sinful nature, is where does it come from? If we all have it, how did we arrive at that? What happened that caused that to be kind of our default position in life? And we get a clue about this in Romans chapter 5. In Romans chapter 5, Paul, again, this, this guy who went and started a bunch of churches in the first century, Then he wrote letters to them to help them understand what it looked like to follow Jesus. He writes to the church in Rome. And he is contrasting two different individuals. He contrasts Adam, whom Pastor Ryan talked about last week. He contrasts Adam with Christ. And he says this about Adam in Romans 5.12. He says, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, which again, last week, Pastor Ryan's like, hey, don't blame Eve Uh, because Adam was there too. And here Paul says, sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. In this way, death spread to all, for all sinned. When Adam and Eve in the garden chose to ignore the command of God, chose to disobey the command of God, they sinned. And that act brought sin into the world to where now we have this, uh, in a sense, this genetic spiritual disorder that is passed on to all of humanity from that point. Adam and Eve sinned. And because of that, their children were born into the world with a predisposition to sin. Their grandchildren, their great-grandchildren, on and on and on until you and I here in 2022, are born into this world with a predisposition to sin. And you say, well, that's not fair. (laughs) You're right. You're right. That's not fair. The way this makes sense in my brain is, is like this, right? Adam, Adam was given authority to be the representative for all humanity. This is like how in, in our system of government, right? We live in a, a representative democracy in theory and, and, in that form of government, you may have have one or a handful of people that represent entire cities or states or nations. And these people are given authority to represent that larger body of people on, on a world stage. So you have people within the federal government. And they represent us as a nation. You have one, two, a handful of people who they speak, and that is representative of the rest of the 320-some million people in this nation. You might not agree with everything some of these people say. The things these people say sometimes might have ramifications for your life. They go on the world stage, and they say something, and you're like, Whoa! Can I I not be part of that? Nope, sorry. They represent you, whether you like it or not. Adam was given that same authority. Only instead of a nation, his authority was on behalf of the entire human race. He sinned, and we are all infected by that. The flesh, as we talk about this today, is a spiritual reality manifest in our physical body. It's this it's this combination. And this is important. Because over the over the centuries, right, within church world, sometimes as they as they seek to to uh, counter the flesh, you see things play out like pretty pretty significant uh mortification, self-flagellation. Like, man, you've had times in the church where monks are out there like whipping themselves with sharps. And it's like, what are you doing? But they thought, nope, hey, I'm I'm battling the flesh. But it's this spiritual and physical reality meshed together. It's not one or the other. So you have this spiritual reality manifest in our physical body. So that's, that's kind of where it comes from, right? This, this spiritual yet physical condition passed down from Adam to all of us here today. And the next question we want to ask is, what does the flesh do to us? What are the results that we see of our flesh at play? How does this actually work against us? Right? Because one of the premises of this series is that you have the devil, the flesh, and the world, and these are all, all components that work against us in our pursuit of Jesus. So what does the flesh actually do? And I want to unpack a few different things with that here today. The first one is this. The flesh turns our attention to self. It turns our attention to self. In a lot of ways, this, this takes a core desire or a core instinct and it twists it. It twists it. So we're going to talk about some things. You're going to be like, well, that doesn't, that doesn't sound terrible. But when the flesh gets a hold of something... And takes us in directions that we don't want to go. The first one is self-preservation. Self-preservation. Now this, in and of itself, is not a bad thing. If I'm walking along the road and I see a pack of hyenas come stumbling out and they're looking at me, you know, it's it's so common in Sturgis, Michigan, (laughs) the old packs of hyenas, there is something in me that says, we should get away from this. It's a good idea. If you if, have you ever seen a hyena? I was at the Fort Wayne Children's Zoo. I don't know a few months ago, and I saw a hyena. In the cartoons, they're all like these like scrawny little things. Like hyenas are huge. It's like they're big. Don't mess with hyenas. If a hyena comes at you, go the other direction. But that's your sense of self-preservation, and that is a good thing. Run from the hyena. But when this gets Taken a hold of by the flesh, we see this play out in ways that are are less uh, ideal. We saw this a, a couple of years ago, right? And and you would go to the store, and and there was not a roll of Charmin to be found, because as people are going into a season of unknown, their first thought is, "Gotta be able to wipe my butt," like. I, I still don't know, I still don't know why toilet, why toilet paper? Why toilet paper? But as people are venturing into this time, like, oh, I'm not sure how this is going to go. You saw people stockpiling things like, oh, I need to make sure I take care of me. I'm going to get what I need. And this gets twisted because at times we will, we will seek out our own preservation at the expense of others. And we put our needs ahead of the needs of anybody else. Hey, I'm going to take care of me and mine. I'm looking out for numero uno. The flesh turns our attention to self. And that can cause us to, to engage in behaviors. And we talk about, hey, this is just, just self-preservation. Hey, I'm just, just taking care of my family. Did your family need 800 rolls of toilet paper? I, I really doubt it. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but I'm curious. Is anyone still sitting on your stock piles of toilet paper that you hoarded? Good thing you stocked up. What is that twisted sense of self-preservation? The next one is self-promotion. Self-promotion, right? At its core, this isn't inherently bad. If it's a pursuit of excellence. With the things that I have... I want to do the best that I can. I want to, to be the best person that I can be through the Spirit. As, as a church, we, we promote this idea of pursuing excellence. What is the best you can do with the things that you have been given? That's not bad. But that gets twisted. When we leverage the things we've been given to create a platform for ourselves. We say, ooh, I I have this gift. I have this thing. How can I leverage that to get more of those things? How can I leverage that so more people see me, so that I get more likes, so that I get more views, so that I get a bigger platform? And we engage in behaviors to promote ourselves again, sometimes at the expense of others. I really, really wanted that corner office, so... I just had a I just had a mention to mention the boss of that you know Charlie he kinda screwed up the numbers last week. And I just a gentle reminder that Charlie's kind of a scumbag. Did you know, Charlie, Charlie's a scumbag. You? And we throw other people under the bus in our pursuit of our own success. That is the flesh twisting that sense of self promotion. And pursue excellence. But it's not about creating a platform for you, creating a platform for me. Scripture tells us, Paul Paul writes in, in Philippians, he says, In humility, consider others better than yourselves. But the flesh says, nope, you're the best. You're the best and everybody should know it. It tries to, to build in us that sense that we have somehow earned this or we deserve this. That's the flesh speaking. The third way is this self-pleasure or self-indulgence. This is the philosophy, and you see this a lot in today's culture. In fact, I don't recommend that you look them up, but but in, in prepping for this message, right, I, I came acro- across a couple of songs. And, and it's very intelligent. Very intelligent, please hear my sarcasm there. Very intelligent, you know, lyricism. And the, the song basically says, I want it, I get it. And then you just put like a fat beat to that and apparently that sells a bajillion records. Because, but this is the, the pervasive philosophy on our day. I want it, I get it. I see it, ooh, that looks good. I must have that. And we have, we have started to equate wants with needs and we're really good really good at at flipping the switch on those things in our brain well I want this well then I must I must need this thing the flesh turns our attention towards self and it says ooh that thing that you want yeah that'd be good go for it go for it now I don't have this one on, on a slide, but another thing you could write down for this turning attention to self is self pity. This almost seems like it's in opposition to self promotion, but it is equally as self-centered as self promotion. Self pity is this place where you you live in this negative just pool of emotion. And you, and you kind of, you, maybe you know these people, right? You see these people on social media, like their posts and every one of their posts is, is basically a, nobody knows the troubles I've seen. Nobody knows my sorrow. And you're like, come on, man. Like not everything in your life is going wrong, but they live in that space. And they want to make sure you know about it. And they live in this place of self-pity. And again, that is as self-centered as the person who says, I'm the best. The person who sits and always says, I'm the worst, is just as selfish. Just as self-centered as the person who thinks they're the best. And one of the dangers with this one is it can, can separate people from community, right? Because we, we, we stay in this space of, oh, like, man, my life is so terrible. Nobody understands. Nobody appreciates me. And so we draw away from people, which is one of the ways that the devil works. He isolates, gets you secluded. So self-pity is a way that the flesh works against us. But if you go back to self-pleasure or self-indulgence. This one is, is especially important to key into because one of the other things that the flesh does is it warps our desires. So the things that we want are not automatically good. Just because I want it does not mean that I should have it. Have you ever gotten something that you really wanted and then later you're like, well, that that probably wasn't a very good idea. <laughs> sometimes getting what we want is the worst thing that could happen. Because the flesh warps our desires. Again, it takes things and sometimes they are something that is not inherently bad, but it twists it. It warps it. Jeremiah unpacks this truth for us in Jeremiah seventeen nine, He says, the heart is more deceitful than anything else. It's more deceitful than what? Anything else. Anything else. And incurable. Who can understand it? Maybe your translation says, who can trust it? But unfortunately, we live in a culture where the mantra, where the manifesto is what Pastor Ryan unpacked a couple of weeks ago. Hey, the heart wants what the heart wants. We use that to rationalize something that we would otherwise recognize as a bad idea. Like, hey, heart wants what it wants. Or the counsel given to people, hey man, just follow your heart. Listen to your heart. The heart is deceitful above anything else so as a as a society as a culture we have taken the thing that is most deceitful and we've said you know what we should do with that we should make that the guiding force in our lives just follow your heart follow your heart terrible advice I love this quote from Andy Stanley. Here wrote a book called Better Decisions, Fewer Regrets. I highly recommend uh, that read. Especially teenagers, read that book. If you can get ahead of this now, you'll be good. Better Decisions, Fewer Regrets. Andy Stanley says this, the easiest person for you to deceive is the person in the mirror. You have talked, deceived, and sold yourself into every bad decision you've ever made. You were there for all of them. We so quickly sell ourselves into something that we know is wrong, but again, we move it. We're like, well, I really want this. No, I need this. And we sell ourselves into some really bad ideas because our desires are warped by the flesh the things that we want do not automatically align with the things that god wants for us and so when we set the heart or our desires as the compass for our lives we will get off track i've not i've not traveled much using a compass but I've talked to, well, I don't think Chris is in here. We've got Chris Kidd. Right? He's, a, he's a Navy guy. And I was talking to him about this one time. About a compass. It's like, hey, if I start at this point, right? Like I, I take off from this port or beach or whatever. And I'm sailing. And I'm, I'm only off by like half a degree. You, you give it a couple of hundred miles. And that half a degree is a pretty significant variance from where you thought you were headed. The flesh is subtle. The devil is subtle. You might not wake up tomorrow and be like, you know what? I think I want to go murder somebody. Because there's the part of your brain that's going to be like, that's a, that's a terrible idea. Why would I do that? But it's going to be like, no, hey, hey, what about this? Like, well that, well, that doesn't sound too bad. Yeah, I, I think that'll be all right. And gradually over time, as that, that deceptive compass of the heart is what we chart our course by, we get more and more off track from what God calls us to. What's up, Dwight? I just saw you out there. Sorry. <laughs> James, the half-brother of Jesus, writes about our desires. And he says this, No one undergoing a trial should say, I am being tempted by God, since God is not tempted by evil, and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. Remember that truth. God is not tempting you. In fact, later, I think it's in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says that when you're undergoing temptation, God has provided a way out. He's not tempting you. He's given you the way out. He says God doesn't tempt anyone, but each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own what? Again, all the devil had to do was wake you up. My own desires... Are what lead me astray. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. This is the same truth that Paul talks about when he says, The wages of sin is death. James just gives us this word picture of, of birth and growth. And that man, we see this thing, we're tempted by this thing that is paired with our own evil desire. And when we, when we choose to go down that road, what ultimately happens? Death. Death. The flesh warps our desires. Paul, again, writing to the church in Rome, is having a conversation in that letter, and he makes this statement. He says they, right, he's talking about kind of the world, the, this, this population. He says, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Pause. Pause but if you were here last week and Pastor Ryan talked about Adam and Eve and how you have, you have God telling them, hey, here's, here's the way that it is. And then the serpent comes along and he says, no, well, well really, it's, it's more like this. Did, you know? Did, God didn't really mean that. It's, it's kind of like this. And Adam and Eve took the truth that God had given them and the lie the serpent had given them. And they said, and they hung on to the lie. Paul says they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped what has been created instead of the creator who is praised forever. Amen. For this reason, God delivered them over to disgraceful passions. Again, sometimes getting what you want is not a good thing. He says, their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. Now, we're not going to camp out real long on the topic of sexuality today, not because it isn't important, but because we're going to tackle this in an upcoming message in this series. But he says, they exchanged natural for unnatural. The men in the same way also left natural relations with women and were inflamed in their lust for one another. So Paul says, man, when, when people veered off of the path that God laid out for them, they exchanged his truth for a lie. One of the ways that we see this play out is in sexual relationships. And he says they exchanged what was natural for what was unnatural. Unnatural. Because this is an interesting way that we not only see people's desires warped, but the way that we actually take something that goes against Scripture and we put the responsibility for that on God. And this is why you hear statements like, well, well, God made me this way. How can it be wrong? How can it be sinful when God made me this way? And that seems logical. Like, why, why am I getting in trouble for something that is just, this is the way I naturally am? Pastor Sam Alberry, whom if you've listened to or watched uh, the podcast that we've done, Uh, A while ago, Pastor JB and I had the opportunity to interview Pastor Sam. I would encourage you to jump back in and listen. It's episode 70 or something. But he, he has a really insightful statement about this. He says, Paul's point in Romans 1 is that our nature, as we experience it, the parentheticals are Pastor Sam's, not mine, our nature, as we experience it, is not natural as God intended it. All of us have desires that are warped as a result of our fallen nature. We say, well, this is the way God made me. How can that be wrong? Pastor Sam says, every desire is open to the potential of the infection of sin, the infection of the flesh. He continues. He says, desires for things God has forbidden are a reflection of how sin has distorted me, not a reflection of how God has made me. As we reject God, we find ourselves craving what we are not naturally designed to do. Our desires are warped. And yes, this plays out in the area of sexuality. Whether it's same sex or opposite sex, you can take this desire and you can go a whole bunch of different directions that don't line up with God's design for humanity. But you could apply this to other areas as well. Natural things that we think, well, hey, this is just, this is just natural. You'd apply this to food, right? Food is good. Show of hands, who has eaten food in the last week? Probably, probably all of us. Huh? Food is good. We need food to survive. But we see a couple of ways that this, this desire for food, because I mean, you have a desire for food or every time you get hungry, your body is saying, hey, eat something. You have a desire for food. But we see this get warped in a couple of different ways. And they're kind of at opposite ends of the spectrum. On the one end of the spectrum, you see food and you desire food. And you're like, well, hey, if, if, if one is good, 10 is better. And we engage in eating food to excess. This is, this is what you would call gluttony well, hey, you know what? One cheeseburger is fantastic. I think four would be ideal. And we take this desire that is good, that is God-given. People ate before sin infected the world, right? God gives them the garden and says, hey, all these fruits and vegetables, eat it. That was before sin. But we take something that at its core is good, and the flesh twists it, and now we engage in excessive eating. We've elevated food, we've made an idol of food. On the other end of the spectrum, this is where you wind up with things like eating disorders, where you have also elevated food, you have made an idol of food. But on this end of the spectrum, you're saying, nope, it's bad. The flesh has taken that good desire and has said, "Nope, this isn't a good desire. This is bad. Don't eat that. Don't eat that. Don't eat that. Or if you're going to eat it, throw it up later." And this is this is serious business. I'm not. I'm. I hope you don't think I'm making light. This is serious. Prior to becoming a pastor, I worked in a hospital, and we had we had a, a young woman. She was in her early 30s, and she was in the hospital for several months. And we worked with her. I did occupational therapy, right? And we, and we worked with her and worked with her and worked with her and worked with her. And after being in the hospital for several months, she died. And all of this was connected to an eating disorder. Even in the hospital, knowing her body is wasting away to nothing and say, nope, nope, nope. Can't eat that. We have this emaciated figure lying in the hospital bed saying, Oh man, I think I'm looking a little chunky. Like, are you kidding me? We've elevated food. On both ends of the spectrum, we have made food an idol. It has taken a good desire and it has warped it, it has twisted it. Because that's what the flesh does, it takes good things and channels them for evil purposes. Parents in the room, do you guys love your kids? You love your kids? Yeah, you should. I hope you love your kids. I hope you don't love your kids more than you love your spouse. I tell my kids all the time, I said, "I, I love mom more than I love you. I do. My kids are all going to grow up and move out and leave me and my wife is with me until one of us dies. So, We're in it for the long haul. Love your kids. But sometimes you see this, this natural instinct get warped. And you have homes where the kids are the focal point of the family. And I would suggest to you that that is, a, that is a potentially dangerous direction. If you raise your kids, whether, whether consciously or subconsciously, communicating to them that they are the center of the universe, as they reach adulthood, where in that worldview is their space for God? God because if i grow up being communicated to that i am the center of the universe what in me is there to recognize that god is the center of all not me on top of which man you raise your kid to think they're the center of the universe and you know the the friedrichsons over there raise their kid to think they're the center of the universe What happens when your kid and the Friedrichsons' kid gets together and they both think they're the center of the universe? How's that gonna go down? And then what happens if if their kid marries your kid and you've got two people who think they're the center of the universe married? How's that gonna work out? Not well. We we talk to those people in, in marriage counseling. Love your children. But your children should not be the focal point for your family. But sometimes we elevate our kids above our spouse. Sometimes we elevate our kids above our faith. It's dangerous. It takes a good desire and it twists it And even if it only twists it to where the compass is off half a degree, again, are you going to wind up where you want to go? No. No. And in those moments, again, as Pastor Sam says, this is a reflection of how sin has distorted me, not a reflection of how God has made me. The flesh warps those desires. The flesh also postures us away from God. Reina, can you come up here for just a second? <laughs> you sat down and was like, oh my goodness, i got to pick on Raina today. Come on up. In this, in this example, Raina gets to be God. Okay? Don't, don't like lord that over everybody else at, at lunch. Don't do it. Prior to sin coming into the world, you don't have to say anything, so you're good, it's, it's cool. Prior to sin coming into the world, Right? If, if Raina is, is God and I am humanity, which I mean, I, I am, I'm, I'm a person, right? So they, you, had, you got to turn to face me. You got to turn to face me. You had this, this fellowship, this communion, right? Adam and Eve had such close fellowship with God. Like, we, man, we can't, we can't wrap our brains around it probably, right? But they, they had this, this connection with God. And then in Genesis 3, where they choose to take the lie of the serpent and get rid of the truth that God gave them, says this in Genesis 3 8. It says, The man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. And they hid. They went from this this place of of communion and fellowship to saying, Oh, crud, the Lord's coming. We got to hide. And they hid. Raina, you're good. You can go down. Everybody say thanks, Raina. The flesh postures us away from God. Go back to those of you that have kids or have raised kids. Have you ever walked into a room and your child is standing there and like as soon as you come in, they're like, I wasn't doing nothing. It was him. You come in, why, why do they hide it? They don't want to get in trouble. Why would they get in trouble? Because they're doing something they're not supposed to be doing. The flesh postures us away from God. It sets us in opposition to God. Galatians 5 says this, I say then, walk by the Spirit and you will certainly not carry out the desires of the flesh. More on that in an upcoming uh, sermon in this series. For the flesh desires what is against the spirit. The flesh is not a neutral party. It actively works to accomplish the things that are against the spirit. And the spirit desires what is against the flesh. These are opposed to each other so that you don't do what you want. Pastor Ryan talked in week one of this series about that that tug of war Paul describes in Romans chapter seven, where he says, man, the things that I want to do, I don't do. And the things that I don't want to do, that's what I do. And you see this, this tug of war between the flesh and the spirit. And he alludes to that same struggle here. He says, but if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are obvious. So Paul's going to tell us, he's like, hey, if, if you choose to, to feed into the desires of the flesh, if you choose to, to look at those, those warped desires that the flesh creates within you, and if you choose to act on those things, the things that will follow are obvious, he says, sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, sorcery. Pause. Right. This is not Wingardium Leviosa. This is. He's not talking about Harry Potter. The root word that we translate as sorcery, and some of you are judging me right now because I know I know Wingardium Leviosa. I just I feel a little judged. Leviosa. No. The the word that we translate sorcery is, is is pharmakeia. Pharmakeia. Right. This is where we get pharmacy or pharmaceutical. This has a lot more to do with drugs than it does with some kid flying around on a broomstick. He says sorcery, hatreds, which is not a typo that is uh, intentionally plural because that's the way that it is in scripture, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and anything similar. Paul's like, man, my, my hand is cramping. I'm writing down all these bad things etc, etc, etc. It's like, when you give in to the desires of the flesh, these are what result from that. And he says, "Man, and I warned you before, and I'm going to warn you again, those who practice such things, those who what practice such things, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Over the course of this series, we're talking about spiritual disciplines, or spiritual practices and you see you see the the practices of the flesh and we want to encourage you to engage in spiritual practices to counter those things we'll we'll get to that here in a few minutes for those who live according to the flesh have their mind this is in Romans 8 those who have their mindset on the flesh live according to the flesh mindset on the things of the flesh but those who live according to the spirit have their minds set on the things of the spirit now the mindset of the flesh is what death but the mindset of the spirit is life and peace. Which one of those things sounds better to you? I'm thinking death. No, but that's how we live. That's how we live. We're like, of course I want life and peace, but yet we feed the flesh. And the mindset of the flesh is death. Mindset of the spirit is life and peace. And the mindset of the flesh is hostile to God because it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it is unable to do so. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Go back to this verse here. The mindset of the flesh is hostile to God and does not submit to God's law. Now, our Reformed brothers and sisters within, within Christianity, they have a really, uh, a really cool Kind of systematic logical approach to some of the core doctrines of the faith. And they call it the Heidelberg Catechism. Now, there are some things in there that we would probably take a little bit of a nuanced disagreement with, but over, like, on the majors, we would be in agreement with our Reformed brothers and sisters. And in the Heidelberg Catechism, they lay this out. They, they systematically work through these aspects of the faith in a question and answer format. So keep in mind that verse where it talks about the, the mind of the flesh and how it does not submit to God's law. Question four of the Heidelberg Catechism asks this, what does God's law require of us? The answer, Christ teaches this in summary in Matthew 22, 37 through 40, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then he says, and the second is like it. It is of equal importance. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is the law of God. Question five in the Heidelberg Catechism. Can you live up to all this perfectly? Can you keep that law perfectly? No. I have a natural tendency to hate God and my neighbor. The flesh postures us away from God, renders us unable to submit to his law, which is to love him and to love people. But in the flesh, I am prone to hate God and hate my neighbor. It turns us away from God. So the next question we want to ask, if this is something that we all have, we all have this sinful nature, And if this sinful nature constantly turns attention to self, if it warps all of our desires to try to get us off path from what God calls us to, and if it postures us away from God, what are we supposed to do with that? What do we do with the flesh? Paul addresses this in Colossians 3. He says, therefore, put to death what belongs to your earthly nature or your sin nature. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, God's wrath is coming upon the disobedient. And you once walked in these things when you were living in them. You once walked in these things when you were living with them. But now, put away. So he says, put to death the things of the earthly nature. Now he says, put away all of the following. Anger, wrath malice, slander, and filthy language from your mouth. And sometimes we read that, we're like, wait, I've got to get rid of filthy language? Ah. Oh. <laughs> it says, do not lie to one another since you have put off the old self with its practices. There's that word again. And you have put on the new self you are being renewed in knowledge according to the image of your creator. And then we see a conversation that Jesus has. So here Paul says, he says, put it to death, put off the old self with all of its ways and put on the new self. Now let's see what Jesus has to say. In Luke 9, 23, Jesus is having a conversation with his disciples. And he's actually just told them that that he's going to go and he's going to die. And, and he moves from that into this statement. Then he said to them, the disciples, he said, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him what? Deny himself. That sounds a little bit different than follow your heart. Jesus says he must deny himself, take up his cross daily. Pause. Sometimes we treat that idea of taking up our cross as like, oh man, I'm having a rough week and I guess this is just, this is my cross to bear. Guess I'll take up my cross this week. He says, you are to take up your cross daily. Deny yourself. Take up your cross daily and follow me. Now you read the words of Paul, put to death, put off, put on. You read the words of Jesus. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow. That leads to this important truth when it comes to what do we do with the flesh. The first thing we have to grapple with is the idea that you are an active participant. You are meant to be an active participant in your walk with Jesus. The trouble is, a lot of times, we don't, we don't treat it that way. Right? We, like, we like this approach to our faith. I stole these, I don't know if he's in here this service, but I stole these from Chad Bennett's Facebook page. Thanks, Chad, for taking pictures. We love to gather together. We love to say, Yeah, I'm part of the team. Woo! Ra, rah, rah. rah. <laughs> and we're sitting up in the stands. We're sitting up in the stands, and hey, I'm not knocking, hey, if you go to sports games, that's awesome, cool, support your support your team. I'm not knocking that. And we, we sit there, and we think, yeah, I'm, I'm part of the team. I'm part of the team. No, you, you know who's part of the team? These guys. The guys on the field. But we're like, well, no, you can only have, like, what, like... Eleven guys or whatever, like so. Man, so we're just gonna we're gonna participate from up here in the stands, and we treat our faith like it's a football game. But guess what? Your faith is not a football game. You were meant to be an active participant in your walk with Jesus. Put on, put to death, put off, take up, deny. These are Active things. Because the reality is, the devil is not passively sitting by, hoping you wander past some Sunday afternoon so that he can feed you some lie. Scripture tells us he is roaring a lot, he's roaming around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he can devour. He is out to get you. The flesh is not some benign thing within us. In Genesis chapter 4, God is talking to Cain, Cain and Abel. These are the first two children of Adam and Eve who were born into the world with a sin nature. And we see Cain murder his brother. And God confronts him in this, and he's kind of like, he's giving him a chance to, to kind of own up to it, like, hey, where's, where's your brother at, man? And in that conversation, God says to Cain, he says, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. The word in Hebrew is rabitas. Everybody say rabitas. When it says sin is crouching, it's this image of a predator creeping down, ready to pounce, ready to get you. The the devil is like a lion. He's seeking around, looking to get you. Your flesh is like this this crouched predator. Man, you give him an inch, he's taking you down. The devil is not passive. The flesh is not passive. Next week, we're going to talk about how the world is not some passive entity just ready to let you go about your business and follow Jesus. They are not passive. Why do we think that we can be passive in our faith? We are called to be active participants in our walk with Jesus. And you see two main ideas when it comes to this in in the passages that we've read. We're supposed to put it to death and then you also see this idea about walking in the spirit. Let's camp out on the put it to death. I want to talk about a couple of different spiritual disciplines or spiritual practices that we can use in our fight against the flesh. The first one is fasting. We hit on this briefly last week. We talked about it briefly in the podcast this past week. We're going to talk about it again next week because this is, this is one that I think trips a lot of people up. There's a lot of misunderstandings about what it is, but fasting biblically, right? A fast is giving up food. Right, we've kind of we've kind of taken that language and now we use it all hey if I give up anything, oh like you know, this week I'm gonna fast from you know riding my bike. Like, eh. You should probably ride your bike, it's it's a good thing. Right, but we we used it for all that. Biblically, if they are fasting, they're not eating. Here's why that's important. Again, the desire for food in and of itself is not bad. Without food for too long of a period of time, you die. A desire for food is not bad. But this is a way where we intentionally say no to a desire within our physical body. And to do it right, not only do we say no to this physical desire, but we pair this with a spiritual focus. We'll talk about that here in a few minutes. So one discipline we can use in our battle against the flesh is fasting. Another one is serving. Maybe this doesn't seem like a discipline to you. But I would would argue that, that serving people on a regular basis should be a rhythm in our life as followers of Jesus. Whether that's in the church, whether that's in the community... We talked about self and how it constantly, or I'm sorry, we talked about the flesh and how it constantly turns our attention to self. One of the ways we can combat that is through elevating other people. I referenced that Philippians passage earlier. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, consider others better than yourself. Elevate the other people. That's what we do when we serve other people. We put their needs first. We say, nope, hey, you know what? Mm, I really want to sit home and just watch the football game today, but instead I'm going to go and I'm going to serve these other people. We put their needs first. I would argue that that should be a regular practice in the life of a Jesus follower. Paul writes this in Galatians 5. Again, this is that same chapter where he's talking about the works of the flesh. And he says, for you are called to be free, brothers and sisters, Pause. A lot of people look at Christianity and think it's a straitjacket. Like, oh, you just don't want me to have any fun, huh? Just a bunch of rules, bunch of hey, thou shalt not. There is great freedom in Jesus, but Paul says, hey, he says, don't let that freedom get warped, right? Because this is the way the devil, this is the way the flesh work. He says, don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Maybe your translation says, don't use it to indulge the flesh. And so on the one hand, he says, hey, like you've got this opportunity or you've got freedom and you could use it to indulge the flesh or what Paul recommends is use it to serve one another in love. Again, regular basis, serve other people. The next discipline is community. Again, this might not sound like a discipline, but I would suggest to you that it is. You should have a rhythm in your life a regular practice in your life of engaging in biblical community. That's important to to specify, not just community. You can get community anywhere. You can get community at wherever the nearest bar is, right? You could have community on Friday and Saturday night that's not the community we're talking about. Biblical community, where you have people gathered around the word of God. And that is what you use as the metric for, hey, man, does this measure up to the word of God? Nope. Hmm, maybe I shouldn't do that thing. And you have people there that can hold you accountable. They can hold your feet to the fire and be like, oh yeah, hey, that thing that you're doing, I don't know if that lines up with this. Let's check. Oh, no, nope, it doesn't line up with that. Let's go a different direction. Biblical community where you put yourself in the position to be, to be real and vulnerable with people, all centered around God's word. Do you have that as a rhythm or a regular practice in your life? And the last discipline I'll mention here is confession. And I would suggest that this is closely connected with the last one. This is as, as I have those fleshly desires and especially as I act on those fleshly desires. This is the practice of saying, that was the flesh. I did that. Shouldn't have done that. All right, community, help me do better next time. This is why I say community and confession go hand in hand. James, the half-brother of Jesus, says this in James 5. He says, therefore, confess your sins to one another. He doesn't say go and confess them to the priest. He says go confess your sins to one another in the context of community and pray for one another so that you may be healed. When we have community that is built around the word and we have this space where we can come in and we can talk through, hey man, here's where I'm living according to the flesh. Hey, here are the lies the devil is telling me. And we have space where we can get that out. This is a very important tool in reorienting us to a godly direction. Now, with all of these things, there is danger, right? Because we talked about how the flesh is a, a spiritual reality, but it's in our physical body, right? And it's this, it's this hybrid thing. In the same way, right, our physical practices, these disciplines, these habits, these routines, these must be Jesus-focused, Richard Foster, who has written extensively about spiritual disciplines, he's, he's, I mean, if you could be an expert on spiritual disciplines, he is one. He says the spiritual disciplines are inward and they are an inward in spiritual reality. And the inner attitude of the heart is far more crucial than the mechanics, right? Just the, just the doing it. Oh, I fasted today. The inward and spiritual aspects. He says this, the life that is pleasing to God is not a series of religious duties. If you leave here today and you, and you create yourself a nice little checklist, you're like, oh, k- k- ooh, I fasted this week. K- 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 I told somebody one of my sins this week. K- 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 I served somebody this week. It's, it's not that. It's not just doing a bunch of extra things like, okay, well, I guess I gotta do this to, 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 to defeat the flesh. And if it's not rooted in Jesus is not going to work. And that's where that second half comes in, right? We put it to death and there are disciplines that can help us in that process. But we have to remember in scripture, the flesh is always held in contrast to the spirit. So we put it to death and we walk in the spirit. Well, what does that look like? We'll tell you in a message coming up in this series. Ha, that's right. (laughs) Because it's already 20 after 12. And I've actually seen a couple of people sleeping, so that's not great, you know. That's good. Keeps me from getting too, like, in the flesh about, you know, communicating here today. We put it to death. And we walk in the Spirit. And we do want to unpack that, and we want to do it justice, which is why we're going to cover that in an in a upcoming message. Worship team, you guys can come up. But those physical practices must be focused on Jesus. We're gonna, we're gonna sing a song together, and the, this song is Be Thou My Vision. This is actually like out of my whole life ever, like growing up in church. Be thou my vision is is one of my it's probably in my top two songs ever. It might be number one. And Caleb didn't even know that. I think when he picked it, like when they arranged the songs this week, it's it worked out awesome. And we're going to sing, "Be Thou My Vision." The self, the, I'm sorry, the flesh focuses on self. Let's let's shift our focus, and may we make this song a prayer. I'll actually I'll invite you to stand here with us this afternoon. If you're at home, and you're joining us online. You can stand up too. But may this be our prayer. Say, Lord, be Thou my vision, Lord. Be the thing that I am focused on as I seek to implement these disciplines, as I seek to battle the flesh within me, as I seek to battle the lies of the devil. Lord, I want my eyes set on you. Be thou my vision. Not these other things. Not these other things I want. The song talks about riches. You can insert any other pursuit in that place. Riches I heed not. Power I heed not. Sex I heed not. None of these things. Lord, I want to focus on you. Make this song a prayer. Father God, thank you. Thank you that we are not left to the schemes of the devil. We are not left to the warped desires of the flesh. Lord, when we walk in the spirit, when we focus on you, Lord, we live in victory. We live in freedom. And we thank you for that. Lord, be our vision. May you truly be the Lord of my heart. When you are at the rudder of my heart, not deceptive, Lord, for you are not deceptive. So, Lord, take my heart. Have it. Do with it what you will. Be thou my vision.